internet, it's a great thing when you... Whoa, 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 Shahir, are you masturbating? All right, so shoot me. I was whacking off, right? I was choking the bishop, chafing the carrot, you know, saying hi to my monster. Indeed you were, and this is the only podcast about movies. My name is Matthew Kroll. And I'm just still zipping up. And my name is Shahir Dowd. With the most weird, I think, <laughs> intro we've ever done for this fan episode of our podcast. Guys, this is the only podcast about the film American Beauty. Wow, this is not a new release. So nope. this was requested. Via Twitter, of all places. Twitter? Yes, Twitter? by, by a follower Twitter? of ours, uh, Ben Drauker. So Ben, thank you so much Thanks, for, uh, for, for suggesting this film. Because I had honestly been thinking about this movie a bit and I was like I need to rewatch American Beauty. Well, cuz it's just uh, appeared on Netflix recently. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was a super handy uh thing. So, so if if you like Ben Drauker uh want to us to request uh, want to request a movie for well, I'm getting all tongue tied. Want to request a movie for us to look at. Um and we've had a couple recently. We've got a little bit of a backlog uh of, of requests. So thank you very That's much. That's true. We, we will get to them. We will get to them. Uh, we've just done Children of Men. This will be our second with American Beauty. Um, you can do that via Twitter or on our email us by at onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, hit us up on Facebook. Or, and uh, we always appreciate those iTunes reviews as well. You can leave us a, a request for a movie on the iTunes review if you feel so inclined. That would be the, the greatest way for us to see it. But um, Matt, I have a confession to make. What? I didn't watch American Beauty. What do you mean? I didn't watch it. You're not the boss of me. Being Drauka. What? You're, you're not in charge of me. What I don't mean you didn't watch it. You don't. You don't need to tell oh, me what to do. Oh, he's skidding. He's doing a skit. No, no, I'm not. He's I, doing I, the skit. I, I actually did not watch it. I really didn't watch it. Why? <laughs> I didn't watch it. I'll tell you why. Because I actually watched it about three months ago, and I've seen this movie many times. But what I did do instead of watching it was jerk off. You're always <laughs> jerking off. I mean, look, I'm doing it right now, but I mean, that's just I've my... learned to ignore it. It's like those <laughs> things you just see through. It's like my default position. Yeah. Um, no, what I did do was read the screenplay. And I and in fact, what I did do was read both screenplays because there are two different screenplays for this film. And that's what I thought. I thought because I have seen this movie many times. Um, I don't know if I'm upset or impressed. I'll <laughs> let you know as this thing goes on. Well, we should we should talk about our history with this movie. Um, my, from my point of view, uh, I everyone knows I'm from New Zealand. Um, I came to America like Eddie Murphy um, to Queens to find my uh, to find my queen. Uh, no, I came to America to study film, and I was at film school in 1999, 2000. Um, living opposite a movie theater, studying screenwriting and film directing at the time uh, in California. And I, I saw a run of extraordinary movies. Uh, I think it was every weekend I was at the movie theater and I saw, uh, it went like this. It was Fight Club, Run Lola Run. Oh, Magnolia, Run Lola Run! Magnolia, The Insider, American Beauty. The Talented Mr. Ripley. Oh, wow. So that was like my, I, and I pretty much thought American cinema was at the highest zenith point it had ever been. And American Beauty was the jewel crown in that. Now, I love all the other movies that I mentioned. I, I love, those are movies I have watched over and over and over again. Uh, but there was an odd perfection about American Beauty that made it slightly elevated from the rest. Now, when I say odd perfection, it was, it was almost impenetrable. You know, like it was so well, well made and so self-contained that it was difficult to dissect. You know, like it was in my mind, just, um, the epitome of perfection. I think the talented Mr. Ripley, for example, is a movie I'm far more passionate about and I watch more often. And I, and I, I, I'm more interested in the intricacies of the, ta the talented Mr. Ripley and Magnolia, which are far messier movies. Sure. But but I always did think that American Beauty was a perfect choice for the best Oscar picture of that year. And I think it was such a strong year uh, for film that year, uh, especially. And then Fight Club was in there as well. I think Fight Club's a masterpiece. Um, but I and I hadn't realized this. And now I know we're the only podcast about movies. Yes. But uh, I've looked. <laughs> I've looked. I, the reason I watched this movie a few months ago was that I was invited by uh, one of our guests, Ivan Kanda 
who is uh, a writer at shortoftheweek.com and a terrific filmmaker as well. Uh, he also hosts a podcast about movies, though I don't know where it is or how to find it or even if it even exists actually. Uh, it, but I, I'm, I'm told you can find it at reviewedpodcast.com. It's a, it's a podcast where they review older movies that have been out for a while. And he invited me to talk about- But do about- they watch the movies? <laughs> Unlike me? Uh, yeah, they occasionally watch the movies. So how then- <laughs> I don't understand the premise. Anyway. Um, but check that out. Explain it to me. Expl- yeah, so they review older movies and they get around to talk about them. And they did American Beauty. Now, I was going to do that podcast with him, uh, but unfortunately because of scheduling, I couldn't. Um, and I wrote him an email afterwards talking about uh, just uh, discussing their review. But I was interested to hear in their review that there has been a critical backlash against this film in the, year, in the year since. Um, and and I and I kind of went down an internet rabbit hole talking about uh, looking at what you know what people thought of American Beauty some fifteen years later, um, and there's an interesting thing which is that uh, American Beauty is ranked among the most overvalued or overhyped movies to ever win the Oscar, which I was really yeah. surprised about. Yeah, I was very very surprised about. Um, I certainly don't feel that way about this film now. With that lens in mind, re- I didn't rewatch it. I'm telling you that because you're not the boss of me. Um, I know you like <laughs> saying it because it feels good, but we we all know. <laughs> um, I I did think about this movie again with what people take a f- umbrage with and what people take offense with to, to, with this film. What do people take offense with? Well, let's get into that. Um, the thing I think the 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 thing is is it's a very theatrical film, and obviously Sam Mendes is a is a theater director who you know this was his first film. Sure. And there was a sense that the, there are things that have not dated well in this film in some people's minds. Yes, and I, I have one. I I don't agree with these. I think these have actually dated pretty well. Uh, but one is Annette Bening's performance as uh, Carolyn uh, Burnham. Oh, I think she was great. Uh, his wife. Uh, it, people tend to find her performance a little shrill, um, a little a little overplayed, where everyone else seems to be pretty well cast. She seems to be playing... I feel like that's a, just her character, though, to be honest. I do, I do. I, I agree. I, again, I don't see it that way, okay. but that's, okay. that's one of the complaints. There's an air of pretentiousness that people don't respond well to. This is a film about the everyday working middle class, but it seems to have... Uh, it doesn't feel like the ordinary working middle class of America, uh, America that you and I know. It feels much more theatrical and it feels much more, um, elevate, you know, like, uh, sort of highfalutin and elevated, uh, than what we would probably expect. Hmm. Um, and then there is the, the infamous, uh, beauty monologue. The, uh, do you want to see the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my oh, life? Oh yeah. That thing does not hold up. It, it's weird to me that people still that people think that that doesn't hold up. I really think that that holds up. And the reason I think it holds up is that I think within the one thing I would describe, but we haven't even gotten into what this movie is about for anyone who we'll get to it. We'll get to it. haven't seen this movie yet. I, the thing that I love about this movie is it's so hermetically sealed. This film is so such a beautifully wrapped box with a ribbon on it, Mm -hmm. that that monologue and that idea of beauty in this plastic bag, holds up within the universe that this film sets up. And I don't think it's a far-fetched universe at all. The idea holds up. I, maybe I misspoke. What I don't think holds up is the emo bullshit from the dude character, from the creepy dude who films all the time. That I, I can I see feel that. like his character, when I watched it, I was I was just like, and as we'll go through the sort of chron- chron- uh, chronological nature of the <laughs> happenings of the film, uh, there's a couple moments where he kind of breaks his own character, but that's even beside the point. Uh, it's just, we've seen like, this was almost the template for this like oddball, you know, nerdy outsider kid. That's really a good person, even though he's super deep. Like, yeah. I don't know if it's the movie's fault so much, but that has become such a, just, I mean, he feels like me, a character in a teen movie. It's yeah. a bullshit trope. Yeah, and this is the epitome slash epicenter of this bullshit trope. But but I feel like it's done with sincerity in this film, right? But that doesn't you can do something that's bullshit completely sincerely. Yeah. I, uh, again, that was my one breaking point. Everything even, even, else, I I would even I go loved. I would go further. Um, I think the character that really stands out to me is uh, is her name Angela, the 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 hot uh, young girl. 
Uh, <laughs> of course, the hot young girl would not only stand out to you, Shahir, but you can't remember her I name. I can't remember her name because I, as I read the script, then I should remember the name from the script. <laughs> uh, but uh, the the cheerleader that Lester Burnham has um, taken uh, taken quite a fancy. You are to. correct. It is Angela. It is Angela. Yeah, I thought that was it in the script as well. Um, and I was talking about Ricky Fitz. The only reason I I was actually stumbling on that in the script is that the screenplay is slightly is different to, to this. And I, and I wanted to explain why I decided to do that. Um, but it, she's played by, not by Thora Birch, by Mina Savari, Angela. I think Angela's character is far more, is far more of a cliche than Wes Bentley's character, far more of a cliche than Ricky Fitz. Uh, she is the, the uh, hot girl that knows she's hot and wants and, and, and flaunts her sexuality. But she does have sort of an interesting moment slash not change of heart, but character growth moment that doesn't happen a lot of times with those characters in teen movies where I feel like Ricky Fitz stayed the fucking same the entire time. But the difference is that we see the backstory that creates Ricky Fitz by seeing his home life. Yeah, his home life. Yeah, the creation of Ricky Fitz is interesting. Yeah. In much but his character does not change. He just keeps going the same on the same path he's always gone on so tell me your ex- your experience with this movie Where- um i didn't catch on to this till late i probably saw this movie 2005 wow really um it just it was one of those things that like slipped by me uh you know every we all have sort of those media black holes where we're like everyone's like oh you've seen this that and the other thing and and uh, to be honest i think at certain points in my life when people had asked me I just said yes as to not get into a discussion about it. And then it becomes sort of like a, uh, like a, like the a second you had seen it. Yeah. In your mind. But then, yeah. And then I just forgot. And then I was like, I should really check this movie out. And I was very glad that I did. I didn't see it in the theater. Obviously I saw yeah. it at home. Um, I back, you know, DVD, DVD. Uh, it was, I don't know. It, 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 um, I really like the sort of sentiment of, of how, it's shine. You sort of said that uh, it t- it's sort of like a too highfalutin of itself sort of sort of thing about mi- middle class culture. I see that and I agree, but I also think more importantly, it takes that highfalutin nonsense that middle class tends to sort of like hold to itself. Yeah, and it goes, "Fuck you! You still have a ton of problems." Like it 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 points out that like yeah, these people are supposed to be the ones that have it together, and none of them have it together. Yeah. It's these. There's even a scene. We'll get through it again, like I was saying. But in the garage, when uh, Kevin Spacey's character is talking to. Um, the the other father across the street, the military guy, yeah. uh, and he's like, "Yeah, we're my our marriage is just for show to maintain a air of normalcy." Yeah, and that to me is like the whole fucking thing. Like, so yeah. I, I liked it because it took those ideas and it was like, "Yeah, here's people tr- that are supposed to be perfect, but oh, by the way, no one's fucking perfect, and yeah. no one's happy." And I think I think the like that is actually that that's a very um, a great idea when examining suburbia. You know, like this is a film, like there's a tradition. There was this, there was David Lynch's Blue Velvet um, and then mm-hmm. uh, Todd Solance's Happiness. Todd which, Solance. Uh, which came around the same period. And they were both like breaking down the austere of perfect suburbia. And, and show- then there was The Burbs. And The Burbs. Although I love The Burbs. <laughs> Actually, like The Burbs is one of my favorite like <laughs> horror comedies of yep. all time. Um, so... You know, they were basically, and I think this movie, you have to remember the context in which this movie came out as well, which is why I think the the plastic bag thing still works for me. And it may have just been the case that I was making movies on video at the time that the plastic bag thing came out. Were you Ricky Fitz? I, you know, like there was something. I'll punch you in the <laughs> face right now if you're Ricky Fitz. There was something powerful about being able to photograph the mundane with digital video as was prominent at the time and finding moments of beauty. Like, because, because it was cheap. Beforehand, it cost a lot of money to record a thing. And also, the digital video was ugly. It, it looks terrible. Yeah, it really does. It's so when you find something, a moment in it that looks beautiful, it is kind of a magical thing. Like, and it reminds me of what the dogma filmmakers, the Lars von Trier and the oh, dogma ninety five. Yeah, Thomas Winter, uh, Winter, Winter, Winter Bottom. No, yeah, I like hey, that. Let's call him Winter Bottom. No, it's something else. But he did uh, that film. Uh, 
Oh, God. No, but you're right. There's something captivating about the look of it, especially today, looking back at it. I've actually been doing an archival project for all of the stuff I've ever recorded. Vinterberg. Vinterberg. Yeah. uh, Where I'm I'm basically making, I've been making movies of one kind or another since I was 11. Yeah. And it was not, it was recording on VHS or even earlier stuff before then. Um, and I was watching some stuff where me and some friends in middle school, like uh, my me, this girl, Kathy, uh, a couple other friends were in uh, in my room, just, you know, just joking around, doing nothing around. And I was watching it and it was like, it was just sort of surreal in the same way. Uh, some of the stuff, maybe not necessarily the bag thing, because I didn't like get a super emotional beauty response from it, but it was like, fuck, this is a moment in time captured in a way that only this thing can do. Yeah. And it's funny because like, obviously I've lost, I've I've lost touch with all the people in this video, but like it takes you back and it's a great sort of way to, to, to relive feelings you had. Yeah. And I mean, I I mean, I just found, you know, this was really, I'd been making films before this period, but, uh, but at film school, obviously you're making like four or five films, uh, you know, in a period of two months, look at overachiever, over <laughs> you know, like you just, I mean, that's what we did. We, we, we had access to equipment that we didn't have access to before. And all of a sudden we could make movies. So I was suddenly like making movies and they looked terrible. They looked awful. You know, like, like everything I did on digital video, even though I would consider myself to be one of the more savvy digital video users. Of course you would. I would. <laughs> um, it, it still looked Nothing like the movies that I love. No, it and never could. Like one, you know, 180 degrees from that. We got an XL1, a Canon XL1 yeah, in high school. To, that's what I used to and shoot. And like with. that looked, because just the glass was so good. Yeah. Uh, it looked like a little closer, but it, it, it looked <laughs> terrible. So when Ricky Fitz looks at this digital video and he has the little videotape that looks like the videotapes that I like had in my dorm room, like lining the walls because I was shooting video every day. And he's looking at this plastic bag and it is beautiful. And he describes what's beautiful about it. It worked for me. I'll say the action is a a beautiful action. And you could argue that the, the movie itself of the bag is sort of beautiful in its own way. I think what poisons the well for me is Ricky Fitz's character in general. Right. Okay. Anyway, so but the movie's not about Ricky Fitz or this bag or looking at old tapes of yourself. This movie is about a, a middle-aged family man. Who's not much of one. Well, this is what's interesting about the screenplay. Should we get into the, the, do you, what uh, do you got? Well, the the thing about the screenplay, and uh, so I spent a lot of time reading about the history. Again, I I I love you know just out the gate, I love this film, and I I don't understand the critical backlash because I think it's so exceptionally made and so well crafted. I think as far as directorial debuts goes, it's up there with Orson Welles as far as a first first filmmaker really understanding the medium and doing things with it that you know you would that surprise you. Right. So wait, wait. I'm I'm curious what you were saying about the script though. Yeah, but so the script. Interestingly, uh, Alan Ball, who wrote the script, uh, I'm gonna do bad things. Yeah, went with on, you. True Blood went on to make True Blood and and, uh, and Six Feet Under. Before five that. of those seven seasons of True Blood were magic. <laughs> I'll let you pick which ones. Uh, I think I I dropped out when Witches started appearing, but uh, quitter. <laughs> uh, but one day I'll get back into it. I, I enjoyed my time with True Blood. Suck it, suck it. I cannot be with you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Bill. Bill. The screenplay was based on the story of Amy Fisher. Now, do you know much about Amy Fisher and Joey Buttafuoco? I know the names. So Amy Fisher, and this is all news to me. I didn't really know much about this. But as far as I know, Jamie, uh, Joey Buttafuoco is kind of a well-known folklore. This is the, the OJ story before OJ was the, was the story. Mm. And Amy Fisher was, the, was called the Long Island Lolita. And she was um, a young 16-year-old girl that had an affair with a married man, Joey Buttafuoco, um, and ended up shooting his wife in the back of the head. That's right. Now, I, I'm, I was confused when I was reading the Wikipedia about this. Uh, uh, Fisher, uh, the, the Buttafuoco's wife didn't die, I don't think. No. Um, she actually lived. And then Fisher went on to become kind of a reality star. Uh, she might have even she she made adult films as well, and there were reunions between Buttafuoco and Fisher, where they talked about being on reality shows together. She was on Doctor Drew's show as well, which is kind of strange for like a person who attempted to murder someone. Yeah, um, 
America. But the reason uh, Alan Ball was interested in this story was that it was revealed during the court case that Fisher and her boyfriend made a videotape where she talked about the murder or she talked about how she wanted someone to, you know, she was going to kill some, uh, kill someone, then go to prison and then come out as a celebrity or something like that, which is similar to what this film opens with, which is a videotape that Jane and Ricky Fitz make about murdering Lester Burnham. And in fact, James the, dad. Yeah. Uh, James Kevin dad Spacey. played by Kevin Spacey. Um, and the film uh, the screenplay has this where they that we the, we're introduced to that video not in the way that we are in the film where we're just watching the video back. We're introduced to that through a court case, and the film the the screenplay actually has a court trial going through, and it's and it's Ricky Fitz's trial. Oh, I'm glad they didn't do that. And they actually filmed it. Um, they filmed that whole sequence, and they filmed because the the way that that film ends is with Ricky Fitz going to prison, and then us learning that Ricky Fitz's dad, uh, Colonel Fitz was the one who who committed the crime. Mm. Um, and it was apparently, uh, it was, so that again, they this was Mindy's first film. The, this was, uh, the whole film was set up at DreamWorks, which was uh, Steven Spielberg, Jeffrey Katzenberg, and, and David Giffen's uh, fledgling, not fledgling, it had been around for a few years, their studio. Um, so, you know, Sam Mindy's didn't have a lot of creative, you know, I wouldn't say like, tremendous creative control. You know, he was kind of a first time filmmaker. Mm -hmm. it was, they spent a lot of money on the screenplay, but in the edit room, him and his editor, Tariq Anwar basically decided to throw away all that stuff. Smart move. Um, the VO was there, but not as prominent as it is in the final film and make the film about Lister Burnham's life as opposed to his death. It's better. It is much better, and it, it's it's a really the reason I wanted to read the screenplay was that I remember that fact, and I and I and I was kind of curious as to how this film plays um, as a screen as a script without that. Now the interesting thing is is it actually doesn't play badly. Like if you read it, it actually is quite it's still quite satisfying. I'm sure it's fine, but I don't think it would be as good. Well, it just it just what it does is it sours the well a little bit, and what what the what taking that stuff away from the film does is allows the film to breathe more in Lister's world and it makes it more about Lister and you know like the murder becomes this mystery that's anchored around the film yeah um, because in the beginning of the movie he's like and in a year I'll be dead yeah the sunset boulevard trick um so that's kind of why I was interested but I I I interrupted you uh at the beginning what is the film about it's about Lester Burnham getting fed up with his mundane life and being sort of walked all over and letting himself be walked all over. Uh, and the catalyst for him making change is actually he starts getting the hots for his daughter's f f cheerleader friend. Yeah, that's sort of what kickstarts him uh, to 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 change his to to maybe not better his life, but make his life more enjoyable. And maybe better is life. I don't. I mean, it depends well, on your on your definition of better. It because it starts a whole slew. He's basically in what I would consider a loveless marriage. They start around the dinner table too, and it's like just awful, awful, just like uh, just sort of cold family time. Yeah, like the mother, like the daughters. Hey, can we listen to something else? You always put the music, and she's like, Oh, of course. As soon as you yeah. cook a healthy, nutritious meal and slave over it all day, then you can be like that sort of smug bullshit that like never helped a family ever. Yeah. It's all over the place. And of course, Lester's just a pushover and distancing himself from everyone, including his daughter. And, uh, then the parents try to take more of an active, you know, role in their daughter's life. And so they go to this cheerleading, uh, thing for a halftime at a basketball game. And he sees Lester sees, um, what's her name? Uh, Ange Angela and starts fantasizing about her and then kind of realizes how unhappy he is. And then, like, whenever he talks to Angela, he's all, like, bumbly. And it's creepy as fuck, because, like, it's still she's, an she's adult a man girl. hitting on yeah. a 16-year-old girl. Um, and then, but, like, it's... What I like about this movie is, yes, that's a super creep factor, and the f couple flashbacks are made to feel you uncomfortable, make you feel uncomfortable, and they yeah. do. But it just sort of kickstarts him into this, like, I'm going to do better for me. Yeah. He, he goes and he figures out the job that like doesn't appreciate him. It's going to lay him off anyway, making him write what he does there like a letter. I don't know if any of you have ever had to do this listeners of like at your job, <laughs> write down all of your responsibilities and what you do. 
it's one of the most bullshit moves a corporation or a company can actually do because what that says is no one's steering the ship and no one knows what your what your job entails and the sooner they know the list they can probably find someone to do it cheaper mm. so it's just sort of one of those it's the first steps to no loyalty which sets him down the path of quitting and blackmailing his job and becoming basically free to do whatever he wants for a year yeah and you know again i think you have to remember the historical context in which this film came out um i feel like uh and this is going to be supported with no empirical evidence but, but <laughs> the, the, my favorite kind of argument yeah but but supported by cinematic evidence that uh, of the of the same time period exhibit a uh, movies fight club and office space uh, and even the talented mr ripley um, and I think that what you saw even reflected cinematically is that there was a growing sense, I think through the eighties and perhaps even the early nineties that, that corporatism was the, the safe haven of the American middle class. It was, you know, like if you can get a job, uh, that, you know, in middle management and work your way, you'll be safe and secure. Uh, you will have a good family, ho- home life. You know, you're the two, the the the, the, the typical nuclear family. Two point five children. Two point five children, and what a film like Fight Club, American Beauty, Office Space, and again, even Talented Miss Ripley, even though that's a period drama, begin to show is the dissatisfaction with that lack of control that I think was excised on the middle class. These were people who weren't in charge of their own lives. They had no agency. And so these films really started to explore what happens when you take that control back. Office space is about middle, you know, uh, lower class worker, lower level workers, basically trying to take the reins of their own lives. Everyone's trying to take the reins of their own lives. Um, And I think the fact that this film was so popular at the time, it really spoke to something that was happening around that period. Um, it really spoke to the idea that that corporatism w- or mid-level capitalism for for the average American, you know, family wasn't going to work, or especially and especially for the average American male. Um, I think this film has a lot to say about masculinity and what happens when masculinity is. Um, is unharnessed. Sure. Um, and, and, and unharnessed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think, you know, that, that the, the list of Burnham basically deciding to, you know, like throw caution to the wind and instead of like trying to save his job, say, fuck you rather than, um, rather than play your game where I'm going to tell you my responsibilities. He writes a letter, which is one of the best, uh, letters, which is, uh, I think my, my, my job is to basically slowly waste away my existence while occasionally going to the bathroom to jerk off. Yeah. Um, and you know, like, and gets fired, but then uses that, uh, uses a technique, uses some information to blackmail his boss into giving him a year's salary, uh, which is the same thing that happens in fight club, by the way. Uh, um, and then goes and takes a job at McDonald's flipping or, you know, uh, Burger Shack or whatever the fuck it is. Because he, because it was the happiest time in his life. Essentially what he's doing is regressing back to a point in which his life where the possibilities were endless. Right. Um, And I, I think that that to me as, as you and I occasionally work as cubicle slaves does still ring true. It still feels authentic to me. And I think it was, it was particularly resonant in that period uh, 99, 2000. Um, so that's why I think that storyline really works, but now that's not the only thread line running through this film. No. Well, before we jump off it, just Kevin Spacey, obviously amazing in this. Uh, yeah, it was, it, it was the first time I remember really, really noticing him and wanting to see more of his stuff, honestly. Uh, and, and I mean, even, even as it, obviously the VO is great. The vocal performance, the emotion he portrays is great being creepy great but like little things like his body language at the dinner table as the movie progresses slumped and then not and then oh in the second dinner scene which we'll get to is one of my favorite i think of all time uh but you're right he's not the only one we start dealing obviously with ricky fitz who you find out um he has a very horrible sort of home life a very sort of overbearing father a a mouse of a mother uh played by allison janey and uh chris cooper yep yeah. Uh, also, you have 
Uh, Jane, his daughter. Jane, his daughter, who is sort Jane, of his wife. Yeah. Dun, 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 dun. Nope, his daughter. Yeah. Um, she's sort of uh, an angsty teenager. She's a teenager. It's that it, she's she thinks her parents are bullshit, but they kind of are in this movie, at least in the beginning. I mean, what's one of the lines uh, uh, Kevin Spacey says, which is that my wife and daughter think I'm a gigantic loser. Yeah. And in a way, they're kind of right. Yeah, exactly. And you also have the storyline of um, uh, Kevin Spacey's wife of uh, what's what's the character's name? Um, uh, Carol Burnham, played by Annette Bening. Yeah. So Carol is not happy either. She's just sort of the opposite end of the spectrum. If if Lester is the you know what I to be happy need to have less structure. Uh, Carol thinks she only is happy due to structure. And so there's even to a point she's a realtor and she is setting up to sell a house. Uh, and she, it's this montage of her cleaning and prepping the house. And she just keeps saying in different ways, I will sell this house today. And it's psyching herself up yeah, and trying to get her like positive and repped up. Like she thinks that's the way to sort of success and happiness. Did you notice who was one of the buyers at the house? Oh yeah, fuck. Who was it? Uh John Chu? Was it Yeah. 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 Before he wanted White Castle. Yeah, exactly. Um yeah, I think she's looking you know, like and if we're going back to that discussion about uh capital, you know, like mid-level capitalism, she is the, she is a person who still believes and Oh she, yeah. You know, she still believes that this idea of perf- if she can achieve perfection that she ex- the, the kind of fiction that she sees in a competitor, the buddy, uh, the king, the king of real estate, buddy, oh, um, you know, then she will be truly happy. Um, and it's something that Lister has just had enough of, you know, like their house is perfection. Their roses are perfect. She even says at the beginning, do you notice the way that her her uh, her apron matches her gloves, Clogs. which, are, you know, it's all that's not an accident. Yeah. And also uh, my girlfriend Robin pointed out that the American beauty is the type of rose that they're pruning, yeah, yeah. which I it, never. And there's yeah, obviously it, the rose petal iconography throughout the entire thing. But I didn't know that either. Yeah. And you also see the uh, the, the tagline for this film. Was, this film was a really interesting thing. The, the tagline for this movie was look closer. And it was like a sign that was on. um it, it, on Lister's disc, there was like a little look closer thing. And that was the tagline for the whole movie. Huh. Um, and it, I think this movie was asking you to look closer at suburbia. Um, but, it, but aside from that, there was like, I think the thing that really worked for me is that, is that Ricky and Jane's story really resonated as well. I, I found their budding romance to actually, Work and I, I again, you know, I know people have a problem with Ricky Fitz as the as the prototype of the uh, almost omnipotent, omniscient um, character who seems to understand how the world work in a way in a way that is more profoundly right. observant than anybody else. I and it's st- not doing him any good either. And he, he does the straight like at one point he burns her name into into the yard. And it's kind of like, it's just, you know, the movie just brushes past it as though it never happened. Right. Um, you know, because he, in any other context, he would be a creepy, creepy human being. Well, yeah, except, and I, I, I truly believe this, the line between creepy and intriguing is how attractive you are. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So yeah. if he's got that beautiful Tobey Maguire, but like not a boy thing going on. Yeah. Uh, also, something that he did that that sort of breaks him for me. I mentioned it before. So he's filming her throughout this entire movie. And finally, Jane and uh, Angela confront him at school. And he and she's like, hey, stop filming me. Yeah. And he goes, oh, OK. And he puts the camera away. Yeah. His character has been set up to be creepy, but also like when you ask him to do something, he's nice. He deals with he's, he deals with Lester honest. and he's honest and he's yeah. fair. But then two scenes later, or three scenes later, he's filming her again. Well, he he bur- that's when he burns the the uh, the name into the yard, and then and then she's and then Angela's like she's look he must be looking at us, and she kind of does like model poses at the window. And then, but he's still filming, and then he, he zooms, zooms past right her past to her him. looking in the mirror and seeing that she's smiling. Yeah. But my my point is that was a character breaking moment for me, just because he asked her to, she asked her to stop doing something, and he didn't. Well, I don't think he's I don't think he's I don't know. This it bugs me. It's not a he's huge. He's not thing. a he's not a. He is capable of manipulation, and he certainly he he's a character that knows the the reason why why Lister is so attracted to Ricky is that Ricky knows what he wants, you know, like and, and he's youthful, and he's youthful, and no, but but also like remember the the way Lister meets Ricky is at a is at a party, 
and Ricky is, is being a busboy. Yeah, and they're smoking pot outside. Uh, and Ricky and uh, and uh, Ricky's boss comes out and says, "You can't do that here. You know, you can't work here if uh, I can't pay you if you're out here smoking, getting high." And he says, "So don't pay me." He said, "What?" He says, "I quit." I didn't even want this job anyway. And like, and Lista says, I think you just became my personal hero. Yeah. Because, because Ricky, it's that thing that, that Lista starts really admiring is that, is that when you're 18, 19, the world is full of possibilities. And if you're a middle-class 18 or 19 year old, you can say no to things. You can take a shitty job and then throw it away just as haphazardly as you took it. Yeah. Um, so, so Ricky doesn't just represent kind of uh, the poster boy for emo or anything like that. He is... Well, he's the freedom that Lester wants. There's something interesting about this entire movie is that every character has something that another character desperately wants. Yeah. So you can link them all together if you want, but also, for instance, like even uh, Angela says to Jane, there's nothing uh, worse than being ordinary. Yeah. So Angela wants desperately to be famous. Yeah. Uh, I think Ricky wants parents that aren't so overbearing as, you know, whatever. And Janie wants parents that Janie, Jane yeah. want parents that are more involved, like to a point. Yeah. Then Lester wants his freedom back versus stability. And the wife wants, thinks that the only way to get, uh, you know, further in life is more stability. She sees what the real estate King has and she wants that. Like, it's always like people's lives are pretty good. But man, that one thing that would make it so amazing is just, oh, that person has it. And like, you could, you, I mean, and I think at some point Lister even says that the uh, and it's a it's a reoccurring theme in both Fight Club and this. It's the idea that the things you own end up owning you end up owning you, you know. And again, I think over the years we have we as a society have come to like go well doy of course you know that's obvious we shouldn't we should reject material cap you know materialism um in its most dangerous form which is that you know when people just want things um you know that's what happens to you sure but but i think you got to remember again this t- at this point in cinematic history i think this was this was a very it wasn't just that it was saying these things as i mentioned before other films were saying these things as well it's just that it was saying it so succinctly, so clearly, and with such composure. Sure. The uh, only, from a technical aspect, the only part of this movie that I didn't like, and it doesn't hold up, I feel like, t- from a technical aspect, not story, is the triple takes. Oh, we're, we're like... It's uh, like uh, the brushing of the hand, but it shows it like three times. Like I, I love that. I, I, I It got old for me. I was like, uh, yeah. it, it, I know it's not sloppy. I know it's very deliberate. Yeah. But my brain, my stupid lizard brain just kept going, oh, I get it. Like, it's important. Like, couldn't you just, just frame I the I mean, shit? you know, it's not like, you know, like I always think this thing with Scorsese, for example, is that Scorsese, it, you know... Scorsese films feel like they could go off the rails at any moment. Yeah. You know, like they could, he, he does those triple takes. He does like really strange editing things, which feel sloppy. And they're just kind of like throwing caution to the wind. Whereas the, the amount of control in this film. I know. know. I think that's another reason why it doesn't land for me. Weirdly yeah. enough, is it's so separate from, from that. But again, it's not, it's not breaking it for me. It's just yeah. every time I was like, Ugh. but you know, it's, it's just sort of moving through the plot. Some funny things that happened in this movie that I love, like sort of dating it. Yeah, he says after they're smoking pot, Ricky and Lester's like, "Yeah, beat me anytime." I love it. Oh yeah, I love it. Fucking beepers. They've got beepers. The father when he's showing Ricky uh, his his uh, stuff in the gun cabinet. Yeah, he has a fucking RPG. Like he has a rocket in there, and I was like, "Fucking a! All right, suburbia." Well, and he's also got Nazi memorabilia. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Plate. Yeah, Yeah. Way to go, pal. Well, I mean, and he he. I think, you know, there's a, uh, the thing that Ricky, the film kind of latches onto at some point, but not, even, but not explicitly stating is that this father, Ricky's dad has, um, a militaristic fetishism, you know, like sure. he, even the, even the comedy he's watching at home, you know, you could argue there's a homoerotic component to what he's watching, but it's men working out in the military and it's everything, everything about his life has been about the order of the military and I think the 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 revelation that he may in fact have some uh, homosexual tendencies is isn't is perfectly repressed by by his militaristic outlook. You know, it's something that they're not compatible, um, but but perfectly 
able to be self-contained, you know, in that thing. He's he's afraid of his homosexuality. Sure, sure. Um, so basically, uh, you know, at this point in the film, Jane and Ricky uh have become sort of a couple in a weird way. Yeah, they 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 hook up. Yep. Um. Also, he when does he films her in the window or some shit? She takes her sh- shirt off. Yeah, he asks. You know, like she they. Uh, I think they they have a courtship through the windows via video. Yeah. And again, and I guess I, I also learned that she was actually like uh, actually underage in the film and they had to get like a waiver. Okay. Which makes it feel fucking weird. This I, is Thora Birch, right? At the time. I guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I remember reading an article about her later. later. She didn't have like, because, you know, the next movie she did uh, was that Robert Crumb movie. Um, I don't know. Because in today's day and age, they just CG that shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, she didn't go on to have a huge career. Um, and, you know, she was sort of questioning about, like, why that happened. Uh, Ghost World. She was in Ghost oh, World. Oh, I liked Ghost World. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I bumped. It's funny because I bumped into uh, a colleague of mine, Dan Weinrich, if you ever get to listen to this episode, who out of the blue, we started talking about movies and he said, you know what movie that really pisses me off is American Beauty. And it was like right before I was coming here to talk to you. And I was like, oh, uh, do tell me more. Do tell yeah, me why more. did it piss him off? And he, he talked about, this is something that we see in this movie quite a lot, is that the level of narrative coincidence in this film is up there with Three's Company for him. Which was that, so you remember the, the John Ritter show, Three's yeah, Company? Yeah, yeah. With the, come and knock on my door. I'll be waiting for you. And it's out of that hers and hers and his Three's Company, too. Anyway, so. Um, the only podcast about 70s sitcom <laughs> starting theme songs. Um, there, you know, like the, the misinterpretation was of. Was that the 70s? Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, let's yeah, go with it. Sorry. Uh, the misinterpretation of Ricky having an affair with Lister Burnham, as seen by Colonel Fitz, um, is 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 three. As far as Dan Weiner was concerned, was Three's Company's kind of liberal comedy, where like uh, Ricky goes over to Lister's house, rolls him a joint, but because of the placement of the the windows, it looks like Ricky is blowing Lister. Sure, and if that was the only reason the father thought that. Uh, I would, I would agree, but there's things throughout, like for instance, there's uh quantum leaps right next door. Scott Bakula. Scott, I love Scott. Uh, Bakula. And, quantum leap was one of my favorites. And uh, he's, uh, he plays a homosexual gentleman uh, with a husband who lives next door. So it Jim goes, and Jim. Jim and Jim live in the first house, then Lester's family, then yeah. Ricky's family. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, Jim and Jim come over to try to welcome uh, the Ricky who just moved there and he meets Ricky's father and they'll bring him like a basket of stuff like welcome to the neighborhood. And they're like, Oh, um, he's like, this, he's, is, my this is my partner. And like, Oh, what are you selling? Yeah. And they're like, no, nothing. He's like, well, he said he was his partner. He's like, yeah. And then he's like, Oh, so he realizes they're gay. Yeah. Then he sees Lester jogging with them one day. And he, and he says something like, how come these F words, uh, always got to flaunt it in your face. And, and Ricky responds with like perfectly is like, I think that's the point, dad. They're not flaunting it. They, they're proud of it. And, you know, and he's, and yeah, there's also a great moment in that when he's sassing him back and he says something along the lines of, um, he's like, you can't, you can't, uh, what, what, what was it? He's like, don't try to placate me boy. Yeah. And you won't ever get past me. And then he instantly placates him yeah, Rick, and you're like, just like, oh, it's beautiful. I mean, it's, it's really, you know, again, much props to Alan Ball for the screenplay. And it, it's, it's funny reading the film as opposed to watching it, how well, Alan Ball char- like writes the characters with without very with very little description. Yeah, you really get a sense through the dialogue who these people are, um, and maybe that I've seen the film so many times that that reading it, I just imagine the people who played them. But it, it does there there is a real sense of who these characters are on the page. Um, it's really really well done. Yeah, um, something I noticed uh, when I was rewatching it um, is that, and actually Robin felt the same way. Uh, it was when we first saw it, we related to the kids. Like you even said, you felt a strong, like sort of draw towards Ricky and Jane's sort of relationship and da da da. Rewatching it. I mean, we're getting older and I found myself more grounded to the adults than yeah. I did before. And that's a, uh, a, a bitter pill to swallow yeah. in a way in a, in a movie that is so 
uh, just not obsessed, but just really likes the idea of youth and youth as freedom, or at least youth seen as freedom. Well, we got to remember the first time, like the first time I saw this movie, I was closer in age to Ricky. That's what I'm, that's yeah, like, yeah, that's what I'm saying. And now watching it, I'm closer in age to Lister. Um, and I definitely don't feel like a grown up, but I, but by Lister standard, I am a man now. Yep. Um, Boy. Yeah. And yeah, it is terrifying. I, I don't, I think. I think this was a pre-millennial, you know, like 1999, 2000 kind of angst. And now we're in, you know, and the word is the same, but the millennial generation where I think social media, social networks, the the prevalence of um, online applications has meant that we're not as fixed as we were. We're, we're no longer in a, in a job uh, economy where we're tied to one job. We are freelancers now. Now there's a whole lot of insecurity that comes with that new economy. Sure. Um, where the, the 1040 economy uh, <laughs> or the W2 economy, I think it is. Um, that's entirely different to what this film is, dis- you know, is basically describing. Um, so, so I find the, I still have a little bit of distance from, from Lister's world. Like I still don't right. quite get it as, as Lister does. Uh, but I can certainly see the transition from like, by, you know, like seeing like Jane and Ricky's relationship is bullshit or not bullshit, but like, this is not going to last. You know, like it's just a young. Kinda, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. We'll go to New York and we'll make our own money. I got people that can set us up. It's like, okay. Yeah, yeah, it, This is not going to work out. Um, So as the. Yeah, I mean, as the movie moves on, yeah. right, uh, a couple different things happen. Uh, Carol starts having an affair with the king of real estate. Uh, Lester slowly uh, spirals out. Um, what not, did she say? Fuck me, your majesty? Fuck me, your majesty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that line. I don't know what uh, cracks me up. Lester continues down his path. He's working out. Uh, he's being Getting buff, yo. He, yeah, because uh, I believe he overheard uh, Angela talking to Jane at a sleepover being like, if he worked out, he'd be hot. So then instantly he just goes and works out. It's also reclaiming his masculinity, sure. I think, as well. Uh, Ricky and Jane, they they actually hook up together for the first time, and then that's where the, the beginning scene with the videotape is actually taped when Jane asks because he's Jane's getting pissed off that he's spending so much time ogling Allison or Angela sorry um he's she like he's, she he's such a he's such a creep da 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 uh it's like uh, I wish you would you kill him or whatever she says and then the, obviously later on in that scene she's like you know I wasn't serious right and he's yeah. like yeah that's actually the the crux of the the alternate script well the the full script is based on the fact that the jury doesn't see that you, you know I was just joking right and like he, Ricky gets convicted because the jury doesn't get to see that last scene. Yeah. Um, huh. and, and then we learn, you know, what actually happened. I'm glad they kept the court stuff out of this. I think it'd be, it's much, it's much stronger with that. I, I, I guess what I'm looking at it from the point of view is that I would like to think that I would be smart enough to keep the courtroom scene out of it. But I, as I was reading it, it's still, the courtroom stuff still made sense to me and it still worked within the way that the film had been uh, the film had been made. Maybe when they filmed it, um, it just didn't play. It didn't, maybe they didn't do it as well as, because there's a lot of it. There's just more interesting stuff, I think, going on outside of a courtroom. I just think there's more that they, that with the time they're allotted, I think yeah. they made the right choice. Well, what it's not so much courtroom. They, they kind of, they play the mystery as bigger. Like, yeah, but they also set up that he's dead. Like, I like the mystery being that, it, you know, when a character says in a year, I'll be dead. I still don't know if they're going to die. Like, it's, yeah. it's, I like the way they played it. Yeah. Um, I, I guess, yeah, this is the thing. I just, I, I hope that I would be that smart. Right. And, and I'm not sure I would, you know, sometimes when I read it. Um, then one of the moments that really encapsulated sort of getting older and trying to reclaim your sort of like youthful vigor and whatnot is when uh, Carol comes home after having an affair and Lester's like sitting on the couch or, do, or he hits her with a remote control car. <laughs> which I really like. Yeah, yeah. And then like, he starts like for a moment, he starts like getting passionate about her again. Like they yeah. sit at a couch and he's like, where's that girl that like used to, used to go streaking and, and, yeah. and fight this and blah, 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 blah. And then like, they're about to like sort of make out and, uh, you know, do something. And, uh, all of a sudden his beer is almost going to spill on the couch. And then he's like, Oh, she's like, Oh, wait, your beer is going to get on the couch. And he's like, so fucking what? It's yeah. just a couch. And then they get into this whole thing. It's like, you see them getting so close to becoming close again. Yeah. And then responsibility rears its ugly head for one of them. And then they instantly take their corners of this emotional boxing ring. And I just thought that scene is so good and so telling of yeah. just this entire problem in the film. 
It's it's a really you know, and it's it's a really well staged scene as well. Like if you look yeah. at the actual camera blocking and the way the actors come together and and the way we zero in on that beer bottle as well, because <laughs> the uh the romance is happening, but but the camera just starts slowly, slowly pulling it into yeah. the beer bottle. Yeah. And like in my lizard brain, having just bought a couch, I was kind of like, that beer is going to spill over that couch. And I don't know. What the, an asshole you've become. I know. And I was like, I don't know if the insurance that you bought on that couch is going to cover that cleaning bill. Maybe it's not worth it, dude. Ugh. <laughs> uh, yuck. Hey, we're all, we, we're, we're, all, like, if I, if I was, if you and I were making out right now and your beer <laughs> started, like, getting closer to my laptop, I think we would, we would probably have a problem. The difference is in this weird alternate reality you've described. The difference is if beer got on your laptop, it would stop working. If beer got on a couch, you could clean it and it would still be a couch. It would still serve its function of a couch. Yeah, but it would smell like beer and I wouldn't like that. Uh, oh, just for the love of fuck. Anyway, uh, <laughs> this is why we can't have nice things here. I know. We're going to move out. So the, 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 the movie moves on. And uh, after a series of, as your friend said, Three's Company events, uh, the father... Uh, of Ricky thinks that there's a homosexual relationship between Ricky, and between Ricky and uh, Lister. Lester. And, and then he threatens to throw him out of the house. And then Ricky leaves. Ricky leaves because he's been making so much money selling weed. His $2,000 bags of bags of weed in 1999, 99 weed dollars. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. This definitely ain't Colorado. Him and Jane run away. Yeah. Or they're preparing to run away, I guess. Yeah. Um, and uh, then the father comes over to confront Lester. They have an awkward moment. Basically, the wording is so like he's like actually says like, yeah, I'm, you know, the, my wife's off fucking this other dude. We just do this for show. And that sort of furthers the father's like, oh, this is actually happening. And then the the weirdest thing happens is he goes in, he, he sort of breaks down and gives uh, Lester a hug. And then he kisses Lester because we, you know, we were intimating there that he had some, he has some repressed homosexuality. And then Lester goes, Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I didn't mean to give you the wrong idea. Da, 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 da. And then he walks away out into the rain again. Obviously this takes place in a garage, a very cool shot when the door opens and yeah. you know, whatever. Um, so then goes inside uh, and since Angela, oh, Angela just got in a fight with Jane and uh, uh, Ricky, Ricky as they're leaving because, and then Rick, Ricky calls her out and is like, you're the most average person ever. And that sort of breaks her. She yeah. ends up staying in the house. They leave. And then uh, lo and behold, Lester comes rolling in yeah, and like with just like a crazy amount of confidence yeah. all of a sudden. He's got. I mean, he's had like a year of swagger now. He's yeah, like he's 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 got his body. He's been working and, out. He's and got then, money. And uh, then he slowly sort of seduces uh, Angela, and then uh, he's about to basically have sex with her, and he finds out that she's a virgin. Yeah, for all of her bluster, and then. I don't know if I really agree with the fact that like that's what snaps him out of it, but he snaps out of it. Luckily, I think he realizes that she's a, she's just a kid. Yeah, and, and like it's that's sort of the, the 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 swift kick to the emotional head that sort of gets him like, oh yeah. fuck. Yeah, no, and I think I think the thing is is that she carries herself with such a adulthood. Yeah, or it, it it's funny. It's the thing that or I like fake adulthood. Really, yeah, it's, it's like, the thing that I think like a lot of like teenage pop stars like dance or you know like they they sort of dance around sexually but i feel like like they're they're still kids they don't quite like, know it yeah yeah you know it's kind of weird that they're doing that um and and he kind of snaps out of it and then he and angela have like a chat about jane and and she says something that's really like it's it's just the moment where this film gets really touching was that you know how is angela and and oh how is jane and angela says she's good i think she's in love and he goes and he's he's kind of like he becomes a father for the first time in the entire movie. Yeah, he's like, oh my god, my daughter's in love. You know, that's kind of cool. Um, and you know, and she says, "How are you doing?" And it's like the first time anyone's asked him this yeah. thing. How are you doing? He goes, "I'm great. I'm good. I've got everything I want." Yep, because he finally achieved it. And the only person in this entire movie that finally figured out sort of what they want. He's got a rose bowl right in front of him as he as he's as he's thinking about his family. Yeah. And and it what what's really cool about everything we've described is that there's an orchestration going on of who killed Lister Burnham. It's kind of like the who killed Monty. Sure, Monty but Burns. it's but it's shorter, and it's like you see the pistol come in, you never see the person who pulled the trigger in the first yeah, scene. But we know that Carol has just been out shooting at a gun range, and she's really unhappy. She's with really this. pissed, so she's coming home to and confront she has a Lester, gun, and she has a gun. So you think it might be her, and the way they sort of show everyone's reaction to the moment of him being shot in the back of the head. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah. Uh, and, and but he dies. He dies at a moment of true happiness. So it's funny right. because the the film intimates at the beginning that his death is the is the end of a life, but it's actually the perfect end of a life yeah. for him. He kind of has realized, you know, like what is true, what is true beauty, so to speak. Uh, true beauty is American, Shahir. It is American. I was American. Say, this movie is the start of the ACU, the American Cinematic Universe. Uh, you know, American Beauty, American Pie, American Movie, American Splendor, American Hustle, American Ultra, American Gangsta, The American, even the Netflix spinoff, American Dad. I've been working on that joke. I, I realize that. <laughs> but you know what you didn't realize? You didn't put in there. American Sniper. Oh, I had. A, I was going to get to American Sniper, but your face looked so forlorn as I, <laughs> as I was going down the list. Did I, did, I, did I give you my Independence Day resurgence face? Yeah. I was like, oh, God. I can't <laughs> believe you're going on with this. Yeah, so that's sort of the end of the movie. And you find out eventually. That uh, it was uh, Ricky Fitz's dad, Colonel Fitz. Is he named after um, uh, Apocalypse Now? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Um, uh, was the person responsible for, uh, for Lister's death. But it, it, is, it is meaningless at the end because what, we, what Lister goes into is a monologue about what's important in life. Yes. Uh, and he describes the, you know, seeing his, uh, when he met Angela for the first time, uh, the way his grandmother's hand felt like paper, uh, his first Corvette, which is a car that he um, buys again. Buys again. Uh, he does it way better than Conan did. Oh, Conan. What is important in life? Yeah. Oh, I've forgotten that whole monologue. It's been a while since I've seen Conan the Barbarian. And um, the lament of their women. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, uh, yeah. And then, and you know, he's like, listen, you know, he says sort of the most haunting thing, which is like, don't worry if none of this makes any sense to you. It will one day. Um, I'm paraphrasing that wrong, obviously. And then it did. Uh, and, yeah, and here we are, almost uh, getting closer to Lister Burnham's age. And, and I wonder then if it, it did. It does start to, to ring true. And, look, I just, I think this film does such a, it's such a well-constructed singular idea. One of the things I love in cinema, uh, in general, uh, is if, if a film has something to say, it says it well using the tools of the cinematic language. And this film does that in space. What does it, it say, Shahir? It talks about the importance of what is beauty in life. It, it, is, it, it, is, it illustrates what is important in life. Even when you feel like you have nothing, you might have everything. Um, and, and I think it does it so succinctly with so much, with so much panache uh, that I've, I find the backlash against it hard to kind of you know, swallow. But it might it might have to do with the you know that thing we talked about. And I think we talked about it uh, with regards to Twelve Years a Slave, or or maybe a couple of other films. That if a film wins the Academy Award, um, it's suddenly burdened by being an Academy Award winning film. Sure, yeah. You know, um, so it 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 might be the case that everyone remembers it as the movie that won all the Academy Awards. But for for whatever reason, this way it holds up. It does hold up. I mean, look. The, There's parts that don't, but it, overall it absolutely does. The year that it won, uh, being John Malkovich, that was another film I saw that year as well. Uh, you know, I was talking about those line of movies I saw in the theater. Being John Malkovich was another one. Uh, the movies that were nominated for Bish Pitcher were uh, The Cider House Rule, The Green Mile, The Insider, The Sixth Sense. Um, being John Malkovich was in there as well. Um, and, uh, you know, The Straight Story by David Lynch as well. Yeah. Um, I, you know, Magnolia was out that year. God, so many great movies. That was such a great year for American cinema. I, I think The Insider might be a marginally, you know, could equally be the great film remembered that year. But, but American Beauty winning does, I, I I'm fine with it. I perfectly agree with it. Yeah. Uh, I especially think it's a much better film than The Green Mile uh, and The Cider House Rules. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I do love this film. Yeah, I, it's not a, I love this film too. It's not a film I, I revisit too often. Uh, I have seen it many times. Um, it's one of those films that's like, it's so, it, 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 in a way, it kind of reminds me of No Country for Old Men. It's so perfect. It's so perfectly sealed yeah. that it's hard to penetrate it sometimes. It's hard to like, to, di to discover new things in it. Sure. Other than just go, oh man, they did that really well. And that might be part of the backlash uh, of it. But it also, you know, it created a... a I 
Go ahead. I was going to say, I just think people like tearing down their idols. I think as time goes on, people like, because the second you can take something that's universally sort of loved and, 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 and held up. Yeah. If a person, an intelligent person can come up with an argument to sort of tear it down a little bit, then that person can tear down some of its shine and sort of wear it shine. It's this weird sort of like poaching culture and it happens. It happens with everything. And, 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 I do think things that even are that are they're skilled and timeless sort of like this movie. And I think this will survive for a very long time. Yeah, Nothing's yeah. truly timeless, obviously. Yeah. But um, I think people it's it's an easy target because, yeah, if we wanted to come on this podcast and rip this movie to shit, we sure could. Do I think we'd be right? No. Could we make a compelling argument? Yeah. Does it do anything for us? Like I could see where. uh uh, the reviewed a, podcast, the other podcast that uh, they they kind of did take a take a they took a swing at it, yeah. And I I don't I don't agree with that sort of mentality. I'm not saying don't don't keep questioning things. Yeah. I just think this movie in particular is something that there's no reason to tear down. We what you said ex- is exactly right. You here, it's a package. What? I know <laughs> it's an encapsulated package of a moment in cinematic time that is just perfect the way it is. Yes, there's a little wear and tear on some of the emo speeches and all that stuff, but that stuff doesn't take away from what made this movie great. Yeah. And that about finding what is actually beautiful. And if, and if and if the speeches that are the most literal interpretation of that of that feeling of that sort of point of the film are the weakest point, but you still get all of the weight and what the film's trying to say from everything that happens to all the characters, that's a film that there's no point in tearing down at all. Yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes I like, sometimes I do want films that are ambitious and messy. Right. But, but other times I want films that are like, there are, there are certain films that I think are perfect and clean and tidily done. That's hard to fault. And this is one of them. Um, before we go, shout outs to Conrad Hall, the late great Conrad Hall who shot this movie mm. beautifully. Yes. Uh, if you can get a copy, I, uh, and I know I used to listen to the commentary for this film. Uh, I, I'd listened to it a couple of times. It's really fascinating to listen to the commentary with Conrad Hall and Sam Mendes when they're talking about how they composed the film. Oh, wow. Um, Netflix has to add that. Yeah, I wish Netflix did because that's the that's the last thing. That has that, DVD media yeah, or Blu-ray. That, yeah, that, that keeps me buying Blu-rays. I still like Blu-rays. I, 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 we were getting into a discussion on the Facebook post, yeah, you and um, uh, Jacob, yeah, yeah, one of our listeners. I uh, really enjoyed. I enjoyed reading that. I didn't have a chance to chime in, but it was about a sort of like you know collecting the the act of collecting. And digital age has made it sort of a different spot to collect. You can collect data, or you can collect yeah. uh, things. And I yeah. like things. I like things, and I, I like I, I like the additional material that comes with a Blu-ray. And yeah, so listen to the commentary with Sam Mendes. It's it's. I think uh, Paul Thomas Anderson put it best is that the commentary for a few films is better than the, all the education that you'll get yeah. in film school. Yeah. Um, shout out to um, Kevin Spacey. I think Kevin Spacey is, Love uh, he's just, he is, he is amazing at playing the, the everyday man and then looking at the camera and showing you that he's not the everyday man. But he, he's he's also so amazing, too, because every role he's in, if I watch him in anything, like Frank Underwood on House of Cards, right? Yeah. I only think of him as Frank Underwood on House of Cards. And then I see him in this, and I only think of him as Lester. So whatever is the last thing that I've seen of Kevin Spacey, that's who he is in my mind. Yeah. And that is so fucking rare in this day and age where we go and sort of see movies for where we kind of, that's kind of dying too, but like sort of like, oh, I'm going to see Johnny Depp. And he's always Johnny Depp no matter what he's doing. You know, it's just that sort of thing. He's so good. And he's, he... His film, it's weird because I think, I was thinking about this last night, every film that he plays, at some point in the film, he has to act as another character. There's always like yeah. a double layer. So like in uh, The Usual Suspects, Kaiser Soze, he yep. has to play, you know, the limp man. In John, um, Seven, in this, he has to play like the everyday man, but then you can see the anger underneath him. Frank Underwood, everything. So I think it's a really good masterclass for acting all around. I think... Uh, even though people find Annette Bening, um, I think she's great. A little rough going in this movie. She was nominated for an Oscar for whatever that's worth. Uh, she didn't win it. No. Um, but the film did win best screenplay, best director, best cinematography, best editing, I believe, and best film. Uh, there you go. So, but but for whatever that's worth, because we have seen, you know, for every American Beauty, there's a crash. So yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. 
Um, so Ben, again, our, our listener who uh, asked us to do this, thank you so much. It was super fun to revisit this. Uh, yeah, and I, enjoyed it from a, w- I enjoyed not watching it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I enjoyed watching it. So I did my job. Uh, but I guess Shahir's more of a freewheeling kind of just loosey-goosey thing where the rules don't apply to him. You're not the boss of me, man. I make my own rules. Yeah, you keep telling yourself that. But Can I, can I go now? Hey, well, actually, <laughs> uh, Shahir, since I'm not the boss of you, answer this question. Where can folks find you? Oh, that is a very good question. You can find me at www.shahirdad.com, S-H-A-H-I-R-D-A-U-D. Uh, you can hit us up at onlymoviepodcast only at gmail.com or on Twitter at onlymoviepod like our friend Ben did and hit us up for a movie request. Uh, also, check us out on Facebook where we have interesting conversations about Blu-ray collections and uh, whether the Marvel Universe is terrible or not. Uh, spoiler, spoiler alert, right? it's it not. Is. Also, Shira, I just want to point out that you said you, you said the statement, I'm not the boss of you, right? Yeah. And then instantly I told you to do something and you did it. So I'm not saying that that I'm the boss of you. Listen, can I leave now, please? No. Please? Uh, you can find me at Matthew Kroll, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-K-R-O-L dot com for my life and works. Also, Skeletor, the number four P-R-E-Z on Instagram or Emperor M-S-K on Twitter. Uh, guys, this has been the only podcast about American beauty. We'll see you next time, we guys. We should do American Psycho next time. Oh. Yeah, we should, someone email us and request that. Yeah, we can't do it ourselves. We can't do it ourselves. Oh, 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 oh.